Hello and welcome to Disseminate the Computer Science Research Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. Today, I'm joined by Ahmed Saeed, who will be telling us everything we need to know about resource-efficient federated learning. Ahmed is an assistant professor at the Queen Mary uh, University of London. Welcome to the show, Ahmed. Yeah. Hi, Jack. Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me. and I'm very happy to be within your uh, podcast today. Fantastic. Um, so I've given you a very brief introduction there, but maybe you can tell us more about yourself and how you became interested in systems research. Yeah, so uh, again, my name is Ahmed Sayed. Uh, I'm assistant professor at the Premier University of London, and I lead the Sayed Systems uh, Research Group, where we focus on scalable, adaptive, yet efficient distributed systems, and hence the name of the group. Um, so um, in terms of uh, how I became interested in uh, system research, actually, it is kind of early on uh, during my undergrad, I have been you know, fascinated about uh, you know, computer systems and their architectures. Uh, actually, also more on the distributed systems and computer networks. And uh, basically, uh, my uh, final project was something around uh, these uh, these topics. And uh, we, we built uh, communication systems uh, back then uh, to enable communication over uh, the Internet through Bluetooth. So uh, back in the time, it was kind of uh, there is no Wi-Fi. We, we had only Bluetooth. So, but in terms of building systems, it's uh, kind of... Uh, fascinate, uh, I was fascinated by this because it's kind of challenging and uh, also rewarding. So uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, the various system components and protocols that keep our applications alive uh, or every day's application that you use uh, is very essential. And uh, this is something interesting, you know, to look into how uh, to make them efficient and scalable uh, as the scale of our, you know, uh, applications increase over the days. I think you mentioned Bluetooth. I remember being at school and it's like sending like video, like music videos or music between us using Bluetooth our phones and stuff. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's and then, then before that it was infrared as well. We used to use yes. it, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are a golden age, you know, I kind of uh, you you had that very you know very uh, challenging task of you know sending even like short music that you know, takes a while and you, you want to make sure the connection is not lost and <laughs> you need it to stay together. <laughs> yeah, we'll be stood there all lunchtime just to send yeah, like yeah. a 30 second like clip to, to each other. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Great. So yeah, today we're going to be talking about resource efficient federated learning. So maybe you can just start us off by explaining what federated learning is. Right. So um, in a nutshell, you know, FL has actually emerged uh, recently. I mean, the idea of federation is not uh, kind of new. There, there are federated databases and it has been there for, for a while. But uh, for machine learning, it emerged as a kind of a paradigm for allowing distributed machine learning. Uh, and it emerged as uh, a way to address the communication uh, issues initially. Uh, so uh, it was introduced by Google. They had uh, distributed uh, uh, learning uh, that existed, but they weren't com communication efficient. So they came up with this federated average protocol. And then uh, this federated learning has also uh, started to kick off and become very popular after uh, they were introduced by Google uh, paper, uh, because now, you know, the privacy, you know, restrictions and regulations have, uh, you know, uh, been put in place over the past few years, and they are you know, they, they had um, this limitation of, uh, you know, how to train their models on the client's data while there is these uh, privacy restrictions. So they came up with, you know, this model where instead of, uh, you know, collecting your data and into their servers and, you know, uh, risking uh, uh, 
you know, uh, all the lawsuits about, you know, leakage or of their data, of the client's data or user's data. Then uh, and instead now they, they ship the model or the compute to you and the data stays within your device for uh, training their models and they just send some updates uh, or, or based on these trend model locally. So uh, it's kind of uh, the interest of it uh, has blown away over the past few years and it's one of the highly you know researched area uh, nowadays uh, and its main use uh, and use cases to enable you know privacy preserving machine learning on uh, users decentralized data awesome yeah so you're kind of pushing the compute to the data there rather than pulling it all in and then doing your computation um locally cool so yeah. you, you touched on a little bit there kind of some examples of where fl is used today so is there any other sort of um like, can you maybe give us some more examples of companies or applications that are yeah. using federated learning today in, in, in production? Yeah, that, that's a good question, actually. So in federated learning, there is actually two different settings. We have the cross device, which is uh, the most typical setting where you have, you know, uh, service providers. Uh, and uh, these are relying on, you know, user data from uh, their mobile devices or smartware, uh, all these kind of, uh, or IT devices. So you have large number of devices that have data and you want to train on them. So uh, for example, in this case, I, I would mention uh, Google uh, is using this to train their uh, Google keyboard. Uh, and they actually um, uh, highlighted that uh, they improved the model by training on users data instead of the held out data set in their servers. They improved their model by 24%, uh, which actually uh, uh, kind of significant for them. Uh, also, they use it for their Google Assistant, um, uh, so to train their voice recognition uh, task uh, for the Google uh, Assistant. Also, uh, Apple uses this as well in their, you know, Siri. Siri, uh, Siri's vo voice recognition is trained uh, by using uh, federated learning on uh, data from the, the users. Uh, so these are kind of examples that I can, you know, mention in terms of uh, cross-device. So another model is actually uh, more related to organizations or companies, which is cross-silo. They call it cross-silo federated learning. And in cross-silo, you have organizations and each organization can be, let's say, hospitals or banks or companies. And each of them, they want to collaborate on, uh, you know, training a global model that is kind of a collaborative model that is more uh, performant than their own local model. Because usually, for example, in hospital data, um, the medical images of, uh, you know, users are quite uh, private and they, 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 they are not allowed to share uh, these data. So they, they use federated learning to train uh, like uh, their models, for example, to do CT scan or, uh, or whatever to detect certain, uh, you know, um, diseases. And actually there was a recent uh, publication, Nature Communications, that have gained quite uh, some interest and citations where, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, there was a large scale FL deployment uh, for uh, tumor detection task among, uh, you know, uh, medical uh, institutions and uh, uh, hospitals over um, 71 cities uh, crossing, you know, six continents. Uh, typically, this wouldn't be possible without this concept of uh, federate learning because normally data uh, are uh, not allowed to be, you know, shared. And, uh, you know, uh, when they deployed it, they uh, actually trained uh, very good models and it led to, you know, actually discovery of, uh, you know, rare cancer uh, uh, that uh, didn't exist. So uh, so they, they, they used it to uh, uh, in a kind of rare cancer boundary detection uh, task 
uh, and they achieved quite good results. Another example would be also IBM. Also, research has uh, recently, uh, you know, announced a solution for you know uh, um, money laundering or fighting money money laundering, and they call this solution uh, a private vertical FL for anti uh, money laundering. And uh, I think uh, these you know emerging you know solutions are quite nice uh, and promotes more federated learning in practice. Yeah, it really demonstrates the power of federated learning there. I mean, I guess the, the ability to kind of go across um, political boundaries and like different yeah. continents and everything and, and kind of having access to all that and like, yeah, fa- fascinating. I, mean, I guess the numbers kind of speak for itself and like 24% increases. Yeah, exactly. It's not non-negligible, right? So and, yeah. yeah, finding things like um, rare tumors, awesome. Um, cool. So let's go into the details of like how federated learning works a little bit more. So can you maybe walk us through the life cycle of how I go about um, kind of training an FL model? Mm -hmm. Right. This is actually a good question and uh, it's important for uh, the audience to understand the process. So um, let's say I'm going to use now actually the cross device uh, setting because this is the more common uh, um, and uh, setting that's where uh, FL emerged from. Uh, so in in uh, in the life cycle for you know federated learning, uh, first you have uh, you want to train the model and uh, in a federated learning setting, and then the trained model is deployed for inference later on the target device, right? So the main focus of federated learning is on the training cycle actually. So in federated learning, you, uh, there is a, the server or uh, the server's provider who owns a model uh, that is designed for a certain task. Let's say the task is voice recognition or next word prediction for Google keyboard or whatever, okay? And so they have designed this model and they want to train it on the user data, okay? So we think of the users as the clients who own their smartphones or uh, smartwatches or whatever, and they have data that reside on these devices, right? So typically what happened is that, you know, uh, first the users check in with the server saying that I'm available for uh, the training. And we say chicken here, meaning that like a kind of a login process is based on the availability of the client. So uh, usually Google doesn't train or involve users uh, unless they are connected to a charger uh, so that they don't drain their power uh, and they are connected to Wi-Fi uh, and they are idle, not used by the user. So so that uh, to not, uh, you know, overload the device. Okay. So after uh, these devices check in, you, you may have like actually millions of devices or thousands of them checking at any point, right? So now the server needs to select a subset of this. Usually the subset is not quite large because uh, the the the, uh, the aim uh, actually uh, is to train on a subset because uh, when you train on very large sample, the, you have this uh, problem of large batch size that actually degrades the model performance so and it's hard to deal with so they take a sub sample with a target number of devices let's say 100 or maybe you know a thousand within uh, one uh, round and after this selection stage which can be based on maybe random sampling or other uh, you know selection algorithm depending on the their application they will send the task to the users and when we say a task here it consists of the model that uh, they want to train plus any configuration like the hyperparameters or whatever to this device. Okay, so they are sent over the network to the devices. Each device start training uh, its model um, uh, on the, its local data, and they, they train it for maybe a number of local epochs. Okay, uh, when they finish the training, each device needs to upload the model update. 
Okay, so this is an updated model or uh, after fine tuning it over the local data and it's sent to the server and then the server goes over an aggregation stage. Okay, so usually typically the server sets a deadline, maybe 10 minutes, waits for 10 minutes uh, for the clients to finish and after this 10 minutes starts aggregating. Okay, so some of these uh, clients are able to fi finish in time because maybe it, because we here see, you know, the clients are you know, uh, heterogeneous in terms of, you know, computation and the network, uh, the data size uh, or the, the size of the data set they have. There are many factors that contribute to the heterogeneity and, and therefore not all of them are able to finish and submit the update. So some of them, uh, you know, become a struggler and uh, are missed out from the aggregation. Then after uh, the server collects these updates, it does kind of uh, apply the federated average algorithm with, by aggregating these updates to create a new global model. And these rounds are, you know, repeated over and over until, uh, you know, uh, the global model reaches a certain objective or target accuracy. And by that point, uh, the model is said to be trained uh, and uh, can be deployed in, 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 uh, for the users. So as you were kind of running through there, because I'm going to ask you next kind of about what, what are the various challenges that come with, with, um, with federated learning? You kind of touched on a few of them there. But the, I guess the, the first thing when we were, we were running through that life cycle there was kind of the requirement of often being needed to be requested, connected to Wi-Fi and being idle because yep. otherwise if you're on a move, like things could be dropping in and out, like the resilience yes. there to sort of the, the kind of the clients dropping in and out, I guess is kind of quite hard to, to deal with. To deal, yes. Yeah, because then you end up with maybe lots of stragglers. If, I guess you kind of have that, I mean, in a lot of cases, prerequisite of like, yeah, the phone's going to be plugged in. We're going to do it between midnight and 6 a.m. when the user's probably not going to yep. be on the phone. Exactly. Um, so when I plug my iPhone in and that's a, on the night, that's what they're doing, right? They're doing some federated learning and it comes up and says, yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, maybe we can dive into a little bit more a few of the challenges and then kind of yeah. case your, your work. Right. So uh, one of the major challenges I mentioned uh, is the heterogeneity, right? So we have uh, various sources of heterogeneity. We have the data. Uh, I mean, each client has his own data and these data distributions vary significantly among all the devices. So we are dealing with non-ID data uh, setup, which is harder to train a model on. Uh, we have also the device and network heterogeneity because, you know, I'm, you are using iPhone, I'm using maybe Samsung. We have and with different, you know, uh, computational configuration and background load. So this varies and what type of network I'm connected with uh, and its quality. So also we have the behavior heterogeneity, which you, you just mentioned is uh, related to, uh, you know, the availability of the devices, right? So this is very significantly and, uh, you know, creates uh, more problem and some, some, in some cases can create like an concept uh, drift uh, where you are training, uh, you know, uh, in the night for some, uh, you know, time zone, which is a day, uh, uh, day time zone for others, then, you are kind of biased uh, or the model keeps shifting between uh, one to another. So th these are quite, you know, significant challenges that actually uh, leads to the, the federal learning model not to be able to, until this point, to compete with a centralized trend model if you have all these data, okay? So obviously a centralized model is gonna be more performant, but uh, actually now uh, the application of centralized model is prohibited more and more because of these regulations. Uh, the other issues is actually also related to, so if we highlight actually uh, the high level issues, we have the problems with efficiency and effectiveness. So efficiency here, meaning the system efficiency and how it, we efficiently use the system resources uh, or the client resources to achieve the target. 
and the the challenges under uh, this is like the heterogeneity and what type of optimization algorithms and um, uh, whether we do multi are we doing multitask learning or personalized FL or meta learning so now you have various you know uh, factors that leads to you know uh, or, or or feeds into the uh, challenge of how we can make it efficient and effective training right uh, another main issue, and actually one of the significant one, is the privacy and security. So even though uh, we say that uh, FL is proposed for privacy preserving, I mean, it, by itself, it doesn't have any privacy guarantees, okay? Because there are attacks that can still restore the data of the users, uh, and they have been applied successfully. So uh, there are further privacy-enhancing techniques that have been proposed in the literature, and there are a wide you know, kind of research into this like a differential privacy, homomorphic encryption, uh, multi-party computation are some of these techniques that are being researched to you know, enhance the privacy and security, right? Uh, and also you have also the malicious clients and actors uh, and uh, the adversarial servers, right? So these are more issues into the problem. Uh, another uh, you know, big issue is, or uh, if we categorize them uh, as a big categories, uh, the third one would be the fairness and bias okay as i just mentioned you know when you shift between the time zones you have fairness issues right because uh, the ones involved in the training are not representative of the global population right so there is a fairness and bias issue uh, and uh, the problem is how to leverage or uh, introduce uh, kind of diverse techniques that ensures a high level of diversity uh, the last and also one of the major challenges that are, you know, not widely researched, there are, you know, a few uh, research works that are coming in, is the system challenges and how to make uh, uh, the system are uh, platform and uh, deployment friendly and easy to, you know, scale with a large number of, uh, you know, users. Until now, I don't think there is a very large scale deployment uh, other than, you know, the, the ones, you know, uh, provided by a large, you know, uh, scale providers like Google because they have or they have control over the, you know, the end device uh, in, in some sense. So for other, you know, competitors, it's a bit hard to deploy this in scale. Uh, and also uh, kind of there are also the system uh, parameters tuning how to parameter various system artifacts uh, uh, like, you know, the server side, there are many parameters that can, you know, uh, uh, control or affect the global model training, uh, such as how, how many clients I select per round, uh, how long should I wait, the reporting deadline, and th there are so many things that play in and uh, can affect uh, the quality of the final model. So there are, uh, you know, system research challenges here also as well. So the, globally, if we think about them, we have efficiency and effectiveness. We have privacy and security, we have fairness and bias, and we have system challenges. So I think these are uh, the kind of four categories that I think of uh, in terms of uh, big uh, picture for FL challenges. It sounds a very fertile ground for research and there's so, so many challenges to kind of get stuck into there. Um, yeah. Cool. So you mentioned there that there's kind of been some of these challenges have kind of prevented um, FL getting near to like centralized sort of learning and yeah. deployment at the moment. So you kind of mentioned in your paper that like the key metric in key performance metric in, in in FL is this time to accuracy. So can you maybe tell us kind of a little bit what this is, and then what the sort of main determinants are of, of achieving good time to accuracy? Right. So many work actually now focus on this uh, metric. I think 
the announce or I'll pronounce it as a time to accuracy and they, they came up with this uh, naming. Uh, so in, in simple words, this is means um, how much time you needed uh, in terms of runtime to achieve a certain or tar your target accuracy. So uh, you remember one of the objective is to train the model until it reaches uh, a target accuracy, right? So uh, now if you uh, think about, uh, if you use just rounds, you know, uh, it may not be uh, easy to compare because uh, a round can take, you know, one hour or one minute, right? Okay, so uh, to have a fair, you know, and practical comparison from the system point of view, we look at the time because at the time is kind of invariant because I mean, when I compare a time, it's uh, kind of a common uh, ground that I'm, uh, I'm comparing uh, everyone with, right? So uh, they look at uh, uh, minimizing the amount of time needed to achieve the highest accuracy possible or the target accuracy that we are aiming for. So that means the time accur to accuracy metric. Uh, so uh, this actually depends on two factors. One of them is the statistical efficiency of your uh, training. Uh, so statistical efficiency means by how much your model has improved within each round, right? Okay, so we are looking here at the quality improvement or the accuracy improvement, the deltas in, in accuracy. So this is the statistical efficiency of the training. So if you have more uh, statistically efficient uh, kind of algorithms, then your model will go to the target accuracy faster, right? It, it, uh, I mean, in terms of because of the delta is higher, so you reach the target uh, faster. The other way uh, in looking into the time is uh, the system efficiency. How, how efficient is your system? So, uh, and it's usually uh, refers to how much each round takes you to finish. And this depends on the uh, various system factors in terms of how fast the training is moving on and how long uh, training takes. And this can be uh, depend on the computation of the end devices. So some work actually just, uh, you know, select the very fast devices to be, to participate, or they also apply some compression techniques to reduce the communication uh, time. Uh, they apply many techniques to reduce the uh, length of the round so that you achieve the target faster. Yeah, on the on the statistical efficiency, um, yeah. I guess you get like marginal gains the more rounds you do, though, depending on depending on what you what what um, what approach you use, right? But I guess like yeah. not all rounds are equal, is what I'm trying to say, right? So like exactly, you have to fact you have to factor that in because maybe the, the tenth round you're only getting a, a, an incremental gain of like I don't know one percent or something, right? And, and so I guess that has to play right. as well. So yeah. yeah, that's correct. Typically, you know, at the beginning of the training, actually, you you the, your margins are higher than the later stages of the training. So you see larger improvements at the beginning. Then uh, uh, the model starts to saturate because uh, it, it maybe it doesn't learn more, or you are not changing the learning rate. There are other, like uh, you know your learning uh, rate schedule, whatever. So there are factors like uh, related to the learning task itself. Uh, what kind of optimizer? the aggregation process, uh, how many learners you are, you know, aggregating, the mini batch size. There are so many factors that play in, into this statistical efficiency. Cool, yeah. And the kind of another thing that jumped out to when you were talking about system efficiency was kind of that sometimes like people just select the fast devices. But do you get any sort of biases implicitly selecting certain devices and the speed of them? Because like the, the, even the user data it's, on them may be different, right? So this maybe do you kind of, or does it kind of not matter? I don't know. Yeah, so this is actually one of the main motivation for our work in Riffle, actually. We, we, we looked at the works that aim to, you know, optimize uh, the system efficiency only without thinking about diversity uh, and uh, uh, thought about, this is not right because 
you know, uh, you are kind of biased in a sense. Uh, you are not improving anymore uh, when, uh, I mean, you are keep training on uh, the fast devices and you are leaving out, uh, you know, strugglers or uh, uh, slow devices that they may have valuable data. Okay. So maybe these fast devices, they have uh, only a subset of the classes and you, you are not seeing the other classes that are, you know, of interest from the slower devices. So kind of this bias is actually problematic. And that was the main, you know, trade-off that we logged into uh, in Riffle. We have the system efficiency versus uh, diversity trade-off, right? Okay, nice. Yeah, because you, you, you mentioned in the paper that you, you kind of optimize design for this before you call it resource to accuracy instead. Yeah. So yes. is it like, can you maybe explain like kind of what, well, I mean, maybe we've just touched on it there, but can you maybe go into that in a little bit more depth and like, I know you maybe mm-hmm. said why you did it. Right. So in, in the paper, we use a different metric and instead of uh, looking at just uh, a time because uh, uh, it may not be the right metric. So in, in fact, uh, uh, in some cases you want to optimize how much resources, because if you think about these users, they are kind of resources that you are leveraging and using. Okay. And uh, it's not free resource, right? It's not owned by the service provider. It's not your resource. So typically, you would like to uh, reduce the resource consumption of these devices as well as, you know, reducing the time. So it's uh, by ignoring the consumption on these devices is not a kind of sustainable solution. Uh, Typically, if you are going to consume many resources that I I paid for as as a mobile uh, user and on my smartphone, you keep you know, consuming my resources for your FL, then I, I actually wouldn't be, you know, uh, you know, willing to participate in this and may actually opt out, right? Because you are harming my device, you are, uh, you know, uh, 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 deteriorating its performance, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we looked at the computational resources uh, that are needed, the total in terms of, uh, you know, how much compute and communication time that you are using to achieve the target accuracy. And this actually uh, can extend to the uh, uh, situations where you are training in, on battery powered devices instead of like Google's you know, assumption that you need to com- uh, uh, connect it to a charger, then uh, it's very important now if you are training on battery powered devices to reduce the consumption on these devices in terms of compute and time. So it's, it extends more on a wider you know, applications and, and scenarios instead of just focusing on time to accuracy. Yeah, cool. I was just, just maybe going on a tangent a little bit here about the um, the opt-in, opt-out um, sort of um, thing here. So, like, when, as an end user, when, for, obviously, because the companies are doing this, like Google are doing this, like you said, with with, with the keyboard, when, when do I opt into this? Is it, like, do I when you kind of download the app and or whatever and, and you just sign it, you, you click terms and, terms and conditions, accept, <laughs> am I just signing my life away there? Well, uh, usually there is a kind of uh, a panel that appears, uh, usually uh, saying that w- would you like to be uh, part of the analytics, uh, their own analytics, right? I think these are the kind of uh, when you opt in and uh, and uh, actually you can later opt out if you opted in uh, initially. So uh, I think uh, in, in many cases, uh, people doesn't realize that this is happening because it happens in the background and while the device is idle. So uh, that's why... <laughs> they do it and for purposefully when the device is idle so that you don't realize, but still they are using your resources, right? Uh, I mean, the, this is something a resource you paid the money for and they are uh, they are consuming it in, in, for their benefit. Yeah, that's probably why the, the battery life on my iPhone sucks. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, <laughs> cool. Let's, let's, let's dig into REFL some more then. So maybe you can give yeah. us a high-level overview of how it works and talk us about the architecture of, of, of REFL. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, basically, as uh, we have uh, said, you know, the, the main pitch, the pitch for uh, Riffle was that heterogeneity is one of the major challenges, right? As I explained, and it's obvious now. And we find, as uh, as we said, the state-of-the-art work uh, addresses heterogeneity in a way that uh, introduces uh, a trade-off between uh, system efficiency and the diversity, resource diversity also, right? And also we found that these solutions doesn't have, uh, you know, the resource consumption in their mind and they, they never, you know, thought about how much resources I'm consuming to reach this. Uh, they care about minimizing the time from the point of view of the provider, the service provider, because the provider wants to train the model fast, to deploy it fast, right? They never thought or took the point of view of the uh, client side and much uh, the resources consumed by the client. And what that was the main thinking was in Riffle. Okay, so we, we thought about how we can build actually a practical uh, solution that still achieves, uh, you know, the time, uh, good time to accuracy metric, while also, uh, you know, reducing the resource to accuracy uh, metric. So, and, 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 and that's why we came with this resource efficient uh, for the learning system. So if we dig deep into the main components of uh, Riffle, uh, there are two main, main components, okay? So one of them is the uh, intelligent participant selection component, okay, or we call it IPS. Uh, and this component aims to increase or, uh, you know, uh, improve the diversity of the training, okay? So typically, uh, as I said before, uh, some works like ORT that we, uh, and was one of the state of the art that we compared with, uh, they rely on, you know, a kind of biasing the selection toward the fast clients. And it wasn't ORT only. I mean, there are other works that did this in, in terms of, you know, improving the time to accuracy, okay? However, we, we found that this is actually harms and is not useful in the non-ID setting and the model qualities are not good as, uh, you know, claimed. So we thought about how to uh, overcome this issue and we, we looked at uh, the availability as one of the factors that have never been uh, used as a kind of uh, um, ways to, you know, tune the training. So we have clients that are not always available, right? So, and if we want to diversify our training, we should care about or uh, consider how long they will stay for the training, right? And rationally, you would normally prioritize your selection towards that the ones that you know or likely would be not available in the future, okay? So, uh, so that you can uh, capture uh, their data uh, in your training and then if they leave out the training and never come back, you still, uh, you know, they contributed to your model, right? So to do this, actually, we needed to uh, introduce uh, actually a, a availability prediction module on the devices. Okay, so this is kind of uh, um, a very simple time series prediction module uh, that, you know, uh, runs on each device. It's not on the server uh, to uh, uh, avoid any privacy issues. Uh, it runs locally on the device and it trains on the device patterns. So it looks at the patterns of uh, your uh, use of the device and uh, your charging and stuff like that. So we focus on the charging state as kind of prediction of your availability because we assume that you will train when you are connected to a charger. So, and, and this module will tell uh, us kind of with uh, uh, how, uh, for each next round, okay, if you are online, it will tell us if you're gonna be online for the next round or not, okay? And it, this will be sent as a probability value to the server. And the server gets these values from the clients and selects the least uh, ones as uh, uh, the candidate for this round because they are not likely to be available then in the next round, right? Uh, so that's how we uh, uh, done the uh, 
um, intelligent participant, uh, participant selection module. Uh, and uh, this eventually will improve your diversity of the clients and improve the model quality, especially in the non-ID setting that is the, the typical setting in, in further tunnel. So we have actually uh, another module called Staleness Aware Aggregation. So we talked about struggler, right? So some clients are, you know, can struggle and usually uh, in federated average, these clients are left out. When you have the deadline, reporting deadline, if these struggles don't come in time, they are left out from the aggregation. Okay, so it's like kind of, you think about it, it's kind of wasted resource, right? So these clients have already, you know, spent some time training, right? And because they were uh, unfortunate to not have a very fast device like others or their network got disconnected or whatever happened, right? Because you don't see uh, what's happening on their side, they were left out, okay? So normally uh, these updates are lost. So it's wasted resource, right? So we introduced uh, a stale aggregation rule. In, in a sense, we allow these clients to submit their updates even at later rounds, okay? However, the problem with this is that, you know, when you uh, aggregate these stale updates, it will uh, degrade your model quality because, you know, your model already shifted from this model uh, that they start training on and they moved on to an, a different model, okay? So let's say you're at around X and they submit at round X plus 10, 10 rounds later. The model already has changed, right? So you have fresh updates from the clients that are training on that updated model at X plus 10, and you have these tail with the model that is in past by 10 rounds, okay? So we introduced some rules to actually have a better, you know, effectiveness or efficiency from this tail aggregation. And this rule involves two factors. One of them is the dampening factor, which try to dampen the effect of this tail update. So when we aggregate, okay, there are weights that is applied or multiplied by the model update so that it doesn't have the same, uh, you know, impact as the fresh models, okay? So we have dampening factor that depends on how stale you are, right? So the more stale in the training you are, or the model are, uh, then it's damped more in terms of its effect. Uh, and we have another factor called boosting factor. We actually boost your uh, stale update by some uh, value based on how deviant you are from the fresh updates, okay? So if you are uh, different, meaning that you have new knowledge or something new to contribute, okay? And in a sense, uh, we, we look at, uh, 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 this is a client that had maybe different data and that uh, th this will contribute something new to the model. So we give you a higher, you know, kind of uh, weight uh, and we have the uh, weighted sum between the dampening uh, and uh, uh, boosting factor to, uh, you know, combine them in a single weight that is applied on the stale updates. And actually we, we experimented with this and uh, had uh, like a kind of convergence analysis and we did ablation study until it was hard to reach the best rule for this. And the ones uh, we are using the paper, actually we found it at, the, uh, at least to the better uh, accuracy for the model. Yeah, I have a quick question on the, um, how you measure that um, some stale um, updates going to be um, beneficial or how, how do you measure its difference from yeah like it's got something good to contribute and boost to boost it up or how do you measure that right so we, we have uh, the fresh updates right or the fresh model updates we average them right so and we have this stale update so we we apply a kind of uh, a KL divergence metric uh, to look at uh, uh, the, the uh, divergence uh, and also we tried other uh, you know um, uh, 
uh, functions like cosine similarity and the, these kind of uh, uh, you know functions that used uh, to find the distance between uh, two objects. Uh, and we use that as a way to look into uh, how deviant you are from the uh, fresh updates. Okay, cool, cool. That makes sense. More details actually are in the paper. Uh, I mean, uh, it's hard to explain uh, this in a podcast. Uh, I mean, a kind of uh, or, or <laughs> virtually, basically. This is true. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah. the interested listeners should go and check out the paper. Um, yes, for sure. Cool. So let's talk about so let's talk some numbers then. So. Can you tell us about your experiments and how IPS and staleness aware aggregation actually performed in practice? Yeah, that's a good one. So uh, in our experiments, actually, we used the uh, NVIDIA GPUs clusters uh, to train our model. So uh, we train in a simulated environment. We actually didn't train on uh, end devices because it's hard to train this in the wild. Uh, so uh, what we do is emulate the client's training on the GPUs, uh, like a, a V100 or A100 GPUs. And we simulate uh, the training uh, effects, like uh, the client selection, uh, the aggregation, everything is kind of uh, uh, simulated and the runtime. And we used actually uh, realistic uh, computational profiles for the devices, like the, there's uh, uh, AI benchmark uh, that is, uh, you know, profiles various devices and gives you the actual uh, runtime for inference and training on these devices. And there's also MobiBerf uh, trace that you know, has uh, traces of, you know, network speeds from over the globe. And we use this to profile devices. For heterogeneity also, there is a trace that we have used for emulating the availability of the devices. Um, so in total, also, we, we uh, uh, each experiment, we repeated it three times to and I took the average of this. And this actually amounted for almost 13,000 GPU hours of, you know, training, uh, which is significant. So if I talk about numbers in terms of, uh, you know, uh, comparing with the state of the art, uh, when we compare with ORT, right, uh, if we long for, uh, run for long term, uh, uh, a number of rounds until the convergence, uh, we see that, uh, you know, Riffle achieves uh, um, a, a model in, that is uh, higher in accuracy uh, compared to ORT by 20 points. Okay. So this is actually a significant number. I mean, if we talk about numbers, uh, Riffle achieved 60 uh, uh, percent accuracy, while uh, ORT at that point achieves only 40 percent. Okay, within the same resources, right? If we uh, talk about the amount of resources to achieve to accuracy, okay, and also uh, Riffle also managed to achieve this within a reasonable time, even lower time than ORT. Okay, compared to another state of the art, which is Safa. Safa is a kind of a different algorithm that, uh, you know, kind of uh, allows for diversity and still aggregation um, by not even having a selection. In Safa, there is no selection. Everyone is selected, right? So the problem with Safa is that resource wastage is high because you are selecting everyone. And uh, then uh, when you do still updates, you have a threshold. Like uh, you say that uh, by default, they use five rounds. Anything that is beyond five rounds is discarded. So again, there is a problem here of resource wastage. So we found when we compare Rosafa to achieve the same target accuracy, let's say 50% accuracy on the Google speech benchmark, uh, we achieve uh, more than 2x reduction in terms of resource usage, okay, which is significant at, uh, at the same time. I mean, even the time uh, didn't, you know, very much. I mean, we took 12 hours, they took 10 hours, which is not uh, quite different in terms of runtime. But the reduction in resource usage is quite significant. 
And if we look at larger scale experiment, we did even larger scale experiments compared to Saba, uh, when we have 3x number of clients, the reduction is more than 5x. So when you go larger and larger scale, you're going to gain more in terms of reduction in terms of re resource usage. Also, we looked at the future proofness of, uh, you know, REFL, and uh, we found that it's future proof compared to ORT or other, uh, you know, uh, mechanisms that are similar to ORT. Uh, and in this experiment, we looked at doubling the computational speed of the devices. Okay. So we, we took like different percentages of the uh, population of the device population and doubled their uh, speed. So we took like 25% doubling their speed, 50% uh, doubling their speed because, you know, the speed of devices uh, improve our time, right? Uh, so in the future, they uh, improve. Uh, and also we looked at 100% all of them doubling the speed. And what we found is that why, you know, Riffle and Ort uh, gain from, you know, uh, both, uh, uh, you know, the, both of them gain uh, by reducing the time and the resource consumption by this doubling of the speed. Uh, in fact, the problem with ORT is uh, the quality doesn't improve. I mean, it's still the quality stays the same because it's biased. They select only the fast device. You give more fast device, they will only target these fast device. And Riffle, no, we have diverse, you know, selection. And that's why the, uh, uh, the uh, results of accuracy keeps improving by doubling these speeds. Yes, yeah, so on, on, on that really quick. So you know when you double the speed, did you also then increase the variance of like you have like you still have the really slow old devices, but then you've got some devices that are now twice as fast? Or was it the just the, the kind of the average speed that increased? No, no, the, uh, the, uh, there is still this variance. I mean, the, the old okay. devices, they maintain their own uh, speed, only 25 percent yeah. just doubled. Ah, okay, that makes that makes a joke. So yeah, because you can imagine a future where, like, I guess I, I know this is true, but does the, the I'd expect the variance in devices to probably increase over time? Maybe I yes. don't know. I'm just kind of um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, the hip there. I, I guess yeah. Uh, if you think about it, uh, like a, you know, some some devices uh, their improvements are you know significant compared to others. Uh, um, usually, it's not uh, uniform the improvements by you know companies and devices they, because of the hardware configurations, uh, you know, set up are different from, mm. you know, uh, company to company. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, kind of, not many people now are using, like, an iPhone 3G, right? Like, they're, 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 yeah. they're kind of all got I, off the market, right? So, yeah. I guess, yeah, 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 yeah that's it's right. probably a lower bound in, like, kind of the version that people are running, um, running on, or phones people are running on. But anyway, yeah, cool. Yeah. So, we, we, it sounds an absolute win, win, win on all fronts, does, um, does Refl. So, Let's look at it from the other side for a moment. Kind of what are the limitations of Riffle? So, yeah, Riffle, uh, I mean, like any other federated learning system, uh, have a common, uh, you know, uh, limitations. Um, and one of the key limitations is actually dealing with misinformation uh, when you have, uh, you know, malicious or non-faithful clients, right? Because uh, if you think about it, we are relying on uh, a prediction model that is trained on the device, right, uh, for uh, predicting the future availability. So imagine the situation that these clients are, you know, sending uh, uh, wrong information. Um, so actually, we, we dealt somehow with this in, in Ruffle by, you know, uh, prohibiting a client that were selected for one round to participate for five rounds in the future. So in some sense... If you lie about your uh, future availability and say, I'm not going to be available in the next round and you were selected, uh, this will not help you to be selected in the next, next five rounds because you were selected for this round in some sense. But uh, I think this misinformation, because uh, you know, you're dealing with clients that exist in the wild, 
and uh, you don't know and the, there's communication channels that exist the, 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 this problem of misinformation is actually uh, quite challenging to deal with okay so this simplification uh, simple solution may not actually uh, be the best solution but this is one of the limitations that exist the other limitation that we have so far is actually how to uh, you know automate the fine tuning of the various knobs that we have in uh, this uh, system and this also not just for the uh, riffle most FL systems they they have this um, you know problem because you have a, a tremendous um, uh, you know tremendous number of you know uh, factors that play in and uh, hyperparameters at the server side at the client side and the optimization algorithm and the learning process uh, the multitude of these you know uh, knobs that you need to tune is very hard compared to you know training on a centralized uh, setting. So I think these are the main limitations that exist, not just for Riffle, for other systems as well. Cool. So with those in mind, what's next on the research agenda for Riffle? Well, at this point, actually, we are thinking of expanding Riffle because Riffle is limited to only federated learning setting, right? We actually thinking about uh, expand, uh, expanding it to be a major framework that uh, can support various uh, techniques or distributed learning techniques, uh, such as transfer learning, multitask learning, personal IDFL, and decentralized learning kind of techniques. And uh, I think uh, uh, it's, uh, I mean, uh, until now, there is no such framework that, uh, you know, are kind of inclusive of all these techniques. Mainly, uh, they are federated learning, and there are other, you know, small works on transfer learning. And it's, there is no major framework that, you know, capture all of these uh, and uh, I think it, this is beneficial because it, it's good to have some kind of uh, um, a generic and inclusive framework of various techniques because uh, in some cases you can have uh, transfer learning uh, based on federated learning, right? Uh, there are some work on transfer federated learning uh, and multitask learning can be applied in also federated learning. So it's good to have a framework that have these kind of techniques. So, yeah, so my, my next question is kind of as a software developer, data engineer, how, how do you think I can leverage the findings in your research and what impact do you think um, this can have longer term? Yeah, actually, this is a hard one. But uh, one thing that I can say, actually, is that uh, still the current FL systems are not there yet. Uh, I mean, there are many frameworks that are coming into picture and they are evolving over the past few years. Like there are Flower, there are FedML, FedScale and uh, fed ai there are various frameworks that are coming from uh, uh, several startups uh, and I, I think they are evolving over time but it, I, I think as a system we are not there yet i mean there are so uh, many challenges and solutions that make you know uh, fl kind of uh, um, uh, practical for wide uh, uh, wide uh, deployment and also we have the barrier of, you know, large companies or providers having control over the end device, which actually make this uh, deployment even uh, harder. Uh, so, uh, but the, I think the results we have obtained in Riffle, actually, we think as, uh, is quite a major step that uh, can, uh, you know, towards having a resource efficient federal learning, because we, we took the view of the client side in terms of the resources they use. And uh, when you say to the clients, I have a resource efficient system for training, I'm not gonna impact you much on, in terms of you know, the training, uh, and eventually the trained model will be beneficial to you, I think more users will be willing to opt in, right? So uh, I think it's uh, 
one uh, good step towards the adoption of thinking about resource efficiency and uh, building uh, more robust models uh, in a sustainable way over decentralized data. Fantastic. So when, when you've been, how, how long have you been working on, on Refl for? How long was the project? Uh, well, I, I think we, we, we started uh, um, at 20, early 2020. Okay, yeah. uh, just before uh, COVID. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I think we, we started by that time. Uh, I mean, my work started with distributed ML in a context mm. of HPC and clusters. And then uh, we, we found more uh, problems in federated learning that are interesting and worth you know, looking into and solving. And that's why we started working on it. And uh, I think uh, it took, uh, I mean, more than two years to, you know, uh, come up, uh, uh, I mean, uh, with, uh, you know, the complete uh, uh, framework and all the experiments. Because you see the experiments took quite a significant uh, amount of time. And uh, uh, we, we tried to look at all aspects uh, uh, for, you know, evaluating it. Yes, yeah, so, so kind of across that period then, what's the um, most um, like interesting and maybe unexpected lesson that you, you learned while working on it? <laughs> well, or caught you off I mean, guard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I, I think, um, you know, system research actually is quite hard. Uh, I, I guess uh, this is my, my experience. It's, it's very, you know, hard work. It takes some time and persistence. And uh, it involves many sleepless nights and, you know, bashing your head, you know, scratching your head, you know, and stuff like that over bugs that you don't know what's happening. And it's because are so, so many things are uh, uh, in play uh, and sometimes you get non-meaningful results and you need to find where exactly, <laughs> where is this coming from? Um, but I think the ultimate reward is actually quite, you know, high uh, compared to other work because you see your work in practice, it's uh, kind of a living creature. Uh, something that, uh, you know, uh, people can relate to or feel, basically, right? Uh, compared to other kind of, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, saying low on the uh, mathematical or theoretical work. Uh, they are uh, important as foundations, but you don't feel it. Right? I mean, uh, and um, I think it's uh, also the open sourcing and making uh, your solutions kind of, uh, uh, you know, available for others to, you know, use and practice. It gives you some joy and, uh, you know, kind of achievement in terms of uh, you contributed something to, you know, the research and, uh, you know, uh, the community as well, uh, to other researchers and community as well. So uh, I think uh, uh, the lessons learned from Rafael, it was hard journey, but uh, I think now, uh, you know, if it is something that can be beneficial in the future, in terms of you know uh, systems that uses uh, its concepts or algorithms to make their systems more resource efficient, this is something that will give us a uh, significant job. Yeah. Do you have any? So, what other research have you kind of got going on at the minute? Oh, is, is Refl sort of your main vehicle? Your main vehicle for research at the moment? Well, uh, so it's not actually just Refl. I mean, we have other kind of work that's going on, but I think the main theme that we are focusing is still federated learning. Uh, we are looking at other uh, directions such as, you know, battery powered scenarios, you know, how to, uh, you know, leverage techniques, as I said before, uh, uh, transfer learning or knowledge transfer. Uh, so we are looking into still uh, the main theme of the big picture of federated learning, but uh, uh, 
it's kind of the main theme that I'm uh, focusing on now, yes. But of there are other works, I, I, <laughs> in terms of computer networks and the civil system, yeah. there are other works that I'm interested in, but the major driver, as you say, is federated learning. Cool, yeah, you've got many irons in the fire then, cool. So how, how do you go about, like, so this is my favorite question, I love this question. How do you go about, uh, like, generating ideas and then selecting which things to work on? I kind of want to know more about your creative process. Uh, yeah, so I, I think this is actually quite a tough one. <laughs> I, I, I don't think there's... A single, uh, uh, you know, uh, an universal approach, and there is no right approach, to be honest. Uh, but the, uh, I think we usually aim to uh, first identify the problem based on the recent line of work, right, and see uh, uh, how the state of the art have achieved, uh, and uh, you know, so that we know uh, this is the point we need to start from, right. And we uh, try to critically analyze these, uh, you know, set of the art solutions uh, by, uh, you know, trying to maybe experiment with them or uh, analyzing their model uh, or the solution they are proposing. Is it practical? Is it efficient? We look at all these, you know, aspects uh, and dissect these solutions to find exactly what they have missed or overlooked in their solution. Uh, and. Uh, and before we, we make any claims, we try to quantify uh, their limitations by doing experiments so that we can motivate our research area or question that uh, we are, you know, we, we're going to investigate uh, further. And, and then after this, after you are defining your research question, you have a project. Then, you know, developing uh, the solution, I think it's kind of falls naturally by, you know, uh, thinking about uh, various algorithms and techniques uh, that uh, can work would work out with the uh, you know the final objective that you have identified in mind nice thanks for that. that's another another good answer to that question yeah, like i said I, I love that question it's great to see how everyone <laughs> works and approaches this thing it's, it's cool um, yeah i agree with you. it's it's a tough one and, and I, I don't think uh, i i my answer may be the the optimal or the best one but uh, i think everyone has his own approach and i think if it's working for you then you, you go for it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's not a one-size-fits-all sort of approach yeah. to that thing, right? You've got to find what works for you. That's, that's the, yes. that's, that's yes. the thing. Exa Great stuff. Exactly. Cool, so I've just got, just got two more questions now. And then the penultimate one is, what do you think, it's a very big picture, what do you think is the biggest challenge in kind of systems research, federated learning today? Well, uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, um, first and foremost is actually uh, the main challenge for us in, in this research area is actually finding skilled and motivated researchers uh, that work on system research, okay? Uh, and uh, finding the ones with the right background and experience is extremely hard because, you know, you are competing in academia, you are competing with industry that pays quite well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's very unfair, you know, kind of uh, competition for us. <laughs> it's very hard uh, to find, uh, you know, good researchers, especially in system research. Uh, and um, the second issue is actually, you know, uh, with our research is to have enough time and perseverance uh, and uh, right resources, because uh, eventually you need the hardware resources to, you know, run all, the, all of these and you need time and, you know, uh, persistent. Uh, so I think uh, these are kind of challenges in, in terms of, you know, personal challenges to, you know, uh, adapt to yourself that, it takes time. You, you, you don't want to, uh, you know, just uh, rush things. You, you need to, you know, study uh, carefully the system and run experiments 
uh, accurately to get the uh, correct results. So uh, I think these are the two biggest challenges, finding uh, the right you know, researchers with the background uh, in system research is very hard. The other challenge is uh, you know, having this personality or adapting yourself to the nature of system research. It's not the typical research that you just build a model and run it on MATLAB and, uh, you know, get uh, some results and publish it, right? It's different, totally different kind of research that requires uh, time, uh, resources and preservance. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's nice. Um, cool. So, yeah, um, last question now. Um, what's the, the one takeaway you want the listener to, to get from this podcast today? Well, uh, again, uh, I'm going to reiterate now on that, uh, you know, system research is quite painful. Uh, I mean, if you are doing it, I uh, I, I salute you. <laughs> uh, but it's 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 fun. I, I can say it's fun because uh, it allows you to acquire multitude of skills uh, and, you know, experiences and actually makes you more, you know, uh, kind of, uh, uh, I, I think uh, eventually when you are coming out of systems research, your opportunities uh, actually in, in the market is higher because it's kind of unique and rare uh, kind of uh, resource and skill. So uh, it's something that is going to be, uh, you know, rewarding eventually if you don't work in academia. <laughs> Uh, like myself. Um, the second thing is that I would like is that, you know, uh, the outcomes, uh, like, uh, you know, when you have outcomes like papers or open source code, these usually uh, that comes from system research have, uh, you know, have higher impact than other type of work because these can be adopted by, you know, uh, uh, systems uh, used in big companies or uh, providers. Uh, and most, actually, if you think about it, most of the great systems like, you know, Hadoop, Spark, uh, you know, all these, uh, you know, systems actually came out as a result of a system research within uh, these uh, companies. So uh, if you think about it, most of our systems that exist today actually is a, a result of system research. So uh, I think this is the main message that uh, system research is actually quite great and uh, I, I hope uh, you know we, we we can find more people doing it. Fantastic, great. Let's so let, let's finish it there. Thanks so much, Ahmed, for coming on the uh, on the show. Um, Thanks, if your listeners uh, interested in knowing more about your work, we'll put links to everything in the show notes. And if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the the podcast through buying me a coffee. And we will see you all next time for some more awesome computer science research. <laughs>